happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back in to Mining Stock Daily. We are welcoming in a new guest today, uh, somebody who's uh, been familiar with the junior mining sector for quite a few years. He's the CEO of LHI Capital uh, out of the Ontario area, Mr. David Lotan. Uh, David, uh, welcome to the podcast. I got I to gotta tell you, you and I had a great conversation in Beaver Creek, and I said, "Listen, let's 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 just get on the podcast and really expand on some of this stuff because uh, we need more than twenty minutes." Uh, and so, what I really, you know, really want to kind of get the ethos of what you do because it seems like as of lately, uh, you're really kind of coming out of the shell a little bit more and and willing to put yourself out there, get your story out there a little bit more. I guess you know why now. Oh, well, that's an excellent question, Trevor. Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, one of the reasons I, I, I'm doing a little bit more media is uh, I'm associated with a couple of public companies and, and one in particular that has uh, struggled uh, in finding its own digital identity uh, in the past few years. And so uh, that particular company, for instance, uh, uh, was was one you know that was well-connected and, and where the company could have face-to-face meetings with investors all over the world and and uh you know we had deep relationships and networks and and then covid hit and you couldn't spend face-to-face time with those people and you might have thought that it didn't matter but um i'm uh, I, i'm just thinking about how media works now and how you reach an audience and and uh well i i'm not um not anywhere close to fully understanding it now. What I do understand is you've got to get out there and talk to people. And so uh, what I like to talk about is trading stocks and resource stocks, and hopefully I can add a bit of value to, to uh, other investors' processes, and maybe that'll, that'll be good for some of the other things I do. Uh, David, can I walk us back into your career and maybe how you found investing, speculating, and resources and mining, why you've stuck with it through thick and thin, the good, the bad, and there's always ugly, even in the good and the bad, no matter what. So, you know, why, you know, why, what is it about this sector that you appreciate and continue to put all of your effort into? Well, my career uh, early on was that of a business operator. I, I, I got hired out of Pricewaterhouse by a hedge fund to go and and take over a problem business, and there was an understanding that if that I would enjoy some of the upside that that I created, and and indeed we did. There wasn't a ton of upside, um, but uh, what I learned in that process helped me start another business, which is. Uh, the foundation, which was the foundation of, of a lot of my wealth. I, I got that business up and running very quickly using knowledge and connections I'd made solving the problems of the prior business and got that business sold fairly quickly. Um, and, and then uh, really after a brief stint in institutional or managing um, or assisting in managing funds in the pension business in Canada, I, I just became a, a private investor. And so, and I've, I've said this uh, awkwardly in a whole bunch of other interviews, so I'm going to try to be a little bit more succinct this time. <laughs> leverage is important in investing. Getting leverage uh, cheaply uh, or for free or without recourse greatly assists 
in amplifying your upside. And so you can borrow money uh, in a margin account and buy twice as or three times as much stock as you have the money to afford. That's dangerous, that short-term limited recourse or, uh, or short-term total recourse leverage. And you could borrow money against your house and put it in the stock market. And it's similar, only you know, you'll never get a tap on the shoulder when the stocks go down, only maybe, I suppose, from your wife. Um, and then there's some really clever, interesting forms of leverage. And if you follow Warren Buffett's career, uh, early on, he started buying controlling interest in insurance companies, uh, which uh, would allow him to get in control of pools of float or premium that's been paid for policies that may never have to pay out on an incident or may pay out once in 10 years. And while there are no payments being made uh, on claims, that money is free for the insurance company to invest in stocks and bonds and that sort of stuff. And so Warren was kind of a master of finding uh, cheap, limited recourse leverage uh, in order to, to get returns. And uh, he teamed up with Charlie Munger, who's getting the same thing out of uh, like a company that was running uh, coupon books for supermarkets. And there'd be payments in advance. And so um, leverage, uh, in the resource business happens because these little stocks are effectively long dated call options uh, with a, an unknown duration. But unlike other long dated options, uh, they don't trade at very high prices, at least in certain markets. In, in a market that uh, I remember and that you maybe ha haven't experienced yet, uh, they can trade at incredibly high prices. And I guess you would. Like in, uh, we, we, we'd say that, you know, in crappy markets, they traded very low implied volatilities. And in good markets, they traded incredibly high implied volatilities, which is that sort of magic, unquantifiable part of an option price that you just observe in the market. And so when resource markets are in distress, Junior stocks, especially in the exploration sector, trade with very low expectations for success. Single digit million market caps. And when markets are frothy and M&A is, is the theme, uh, even the worst project uh, can trade at an incredibly high price, even if, it, you know, even if its chances of getting built are are remote and it's in some remote location where permitting is going to be a struggle when there, there's a whole bunch of people who are likely to take it from you. So uh, a long answer. And, and let me try to be even more succinct. <laughs> if you want to buy low and sell high, volatility is your friend. If the difference between low and high is 1%, then the only way you're going to make any money on that is by applying leverage to it. But resource markets are highly volatile. It's very, very tricky, but the difference between low and high in these markets is about as big as it gets. Right, right. Yeah. You know, Rick Rulo has always talked about appreciating the volatility in yeah. these resource markets. But this use of leverage here is interesting. I don't know. I, I think I have a lot more questions on this and maybe wasn't necessarily prepared to talk about it. But mm -hmm. the one question I have for you, David, is listen, in the general in the general scheme of the markets now. We're seeing a lot more uh, participants in the market, more so ever than in history. We're seeing the highest use of leverage 
and credit for stock buying now, most in, in history. And this is always typically signs of maybe ends of cycles or a correction is near. A lot of people think that way. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. always true, but but what is that? You know, do you, is that is there a concern here in the resource market? Just because these the resource equities are so beat up and so underappreciated, would this have a a different effect than what we're would we would potentially be seeing in the general market? Does that make sense? It does. Okay. And I think that it's extremely important to understand. It's extremely important to have at least some basic appreciation for where you are in the macro cycle. But the macro cycle is notoriously tricky. Uh, it, it's a very tricky place to try to orient yourself. Um, I remember in the 1990s when I was running this mortgage bank. And so I was a, wasn't a massive balance sheet. It was close to a billion dollars and we acquired apartment building mortgages and put them into special purpose vehicles and raise money in the bond markets and then uh, put derivatives, interest rate derivatives in there to hedge off the, the mismatch between raising 30 day money and lending money out for five and seven years. So I spent a lot of time in the rates market and I still have an email that I got from my swaps trader at Deutsche Bank years ago, predicting five more rate hikes in 2001. And in January of 2001, Greenspan splashed a surprise interest rate cut on the market, an intermeeting cut. And there was a brief euphoria and then the stock market crashed. And the the, the final great death spiral of the NASDAQ began. And it was because it was obvious now that the Fed saw something that market participants didn't see. And so if Deutsche Bank, with thousands of employees and all kinds of computing power and connections at the central banks got it so wrong, how am I going to get it right in trying to predict the macro? So I think I try to I try to find analogies in past cycles. So if I want to find a cycle that this one resembles, I would go back to the 1990s and I would think about the tech cycle, which started with I think uh, hardware. Maybe it started with semiconductors and that rolled into you know hardware mainframes. And then all of a sudden, every business had to get a laptop for its employees. And so it went into personal computing. And and then Microsoft came up with this innovative interface, which made it easier for people to use computers. And, and that began sort of the software part of the tech revolution. And then the internet happened. And so there were networking stocks and there were internet portals. And then finally, there were just websites. Yeah, Yahoo. that's Net, Netscape really was uh, a pivotal innovation. Correct, correct. And so there were there, there there were multiple generations in that tech boom, and then finally you got to the place where you were IPOing anyone who could put .dot com on articles of incorporation fast enough, and. No one had any interest in mining stocks. And of course, Briex 
uh, had had happened in 1997, and, and it bombed at the sector, especially the junior sector. Uh, there was no capital for these companies because why would you put capital into a mining equity when you could put capital into the next what you would hope would be Netscape IPO? I had people calling me from friends of mine calling me who were like who were car salesmen saying, "Oh, you know the." I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a connection to get into these IPOs because these IPOs double and triple whenever they come out. And, and I just yeah. watched, I was in the mortgage business. You know, you felt like a complete loser. Yeah. I'm, I'm in this sort of time immemorial process of, uh, of borrowing money from the capital markets and lending an editor premium and taking off a, a minute spread, but yeah, you know, multiplying it with leverage. And then the whole thing crashed. And that was the end of unicorns, lemon lollipops, and rainbows, and the beginning of capital starting to flow back into real things. And it only got worse because Elliot Spitzer, who was the attorney general for New York State at the time, decided that the brokering community had potentially pulled one over on the retail investing public. And in a very novel process, he began seizing emails or seizing uh, email servers or the contents of email servers from Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and some of these other banks. And, and he exposed the fact that Mary Meeker and Henry Blodgett had written reports that recommended companies that they thought were crap. And so not only did you have all these uh, assets crashing, they'd reached, you know, the last marginal dollar of buying had been reached. Uh, and they just couldn't go up anymore and, and they couldn't be supported anymore. But all of a sudden it emerged that there had, uh, that there had been a, a breach of the fiduciary duty between broker and client. And it was a really big one. Uh, and uh, this, this was just a perfect storm for money to flow into real things and for people to decide that they didn't want to own stocks, they wanted to own gold or they wanted to own coal or copper or something like that. Yeah. And so if Tesla trading for an infinite multiple on earnings and Uber and Airbnb and all these TAM stocks, total available market, companies that make no money, but don't worry, just like Amazon, they're not going to make profits for 20 years, but then all of a sudden, it'll, it'll turn out that they have a bunch of little monopolies that they've created and they can just jack the price up anytime they want to become profitable. Um, if, if this particular cycle and where we are in it resembles uh, 99, 2000, 2001, well, what happened afterwards was great for commodity stocks and precious metals. Um, and I could go back and compare it to the 19, you know, 1969 and 1971, the go-go stocks and the conglomerate stocks. And we could talk about what happened in the 1970s after those tech and uh, financial engineering manias, but it's really, it's, it's almost the same story, just different companies. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I've been kind of doing a little bit of reading about really the formation of bubbles and a bubble is mm -hmm. usually formed. You have to have something that's marketable. That's obviously of interest that people can like latch to. Mm -hmm. And then you have this time of great access to capital, easy money. 
Yes. And that in turn turns into just mad speculation in the numbers of participants in these markets, inflating these bubbles more and more. And so it's kind of like this three this this three step process to bubbles. And and you know, whether it's the tech bubble of the late nineties or two thousands or the what was it the South Sea bubbles <laughs> the South Sea bubble out of the UK uh hundreds of years ago. Right. You know, they they all have these they seem to always be formed around the same premise, marketability, easy capital, easy money, big speculation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but and what I'm curious, Dave, is the transition from speculative bubble, maybe from what you saw during the tech era of 20 years ago, 21 years ago. Mm-hmm. And what is that transition from speculative growth stocks like a technology internet stock to hard assets such as resources and do you see that playing out now within the smart money the big institutional money or you know and is the big retail not yet doing that yet you know what does that transition look like what do we need to be looking out for Mm -hmm. well i think that uh it's unlikely that that transition happens without some sort of discontinuity, uh, which is to say a, a market crash of some kind. And if you're a resource investor, and I think that that's our broader context here, within a resource cycle, so when all of the producing companies have finally digested all of the massive write downs they had to take from the last cycle, and have finally sold the assets that they shouldn't have sold to other junior companies or private equity companies and paid off some debts just in time for commodity prices to take off again and, 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 um, and, and start the cycle all over again where investors slowly but surely begin to pay attention to their equities and then they begin to choose only the companies that are gonna grow over the companies that aren't gonna grow and eventually management of all companies are forced to find ways to grow. And if you look at the Kirkland Lake Agnico deal, that's not growth. That's cost cutting. That's synergies. That's relevance. Multiplying your size so that you you are are able to be included in more passive investing strategies. Um, so we're not there yet, although it's coming. Um, but when you when you when you finally get to that cycle where uh, the cupboards are empty and reserves are running down and, and they're going to need to be replaced and companies are going to have to compete with each other for growth and they're going to have to acquire other companies and, and, and projects to do that. That cycle is usually a decade, sometimes longer. But within that cycle, you might have five major corrections in the S&P 500. And you'll probably have a stock market crash or incident of some kind. And if you're hunting in the most dangerous places down in the junior resource sector, you're going to be disproportionately affected by some of those incidents. But what you will often see, or what I have observed in my time and all of the work I've done on these markets 
is that you'll move from a very low price environment for R&D companies, project companies, explorers. You move up to a new plateau and then you'll pull back. And then you move up to a higher plateau and then you'll pull back. And then in the late stages of that market, you'll get Redback going to Kinross for $8 billion and Equinox going to Barrick for $7 billion and Lahir Gold Mines going to Newcrest for $7 billion and Endian going to Gold Corp for $3.5 billion. Um, and, and when these companies have made themselves sufficiently vulnerable to massive write downs, <laughs> soon they follow. Um, so while I think the transition from purely speculative investing in the big markets to hard assets, self-liquidating companies, companies that are making earnings. So, you know, let's say you, you, you buy Barrick now at $20 a share, whatever it trades for, and, and you're going to get enough dividends to pay you back on your investment in seven years or eight years or something like that. So the transition from growth or maybe even fantasy stocks to value and to value that's rooted in life's necessities and, and uh, if, if we're in the everything bubble now, I guess we'll get into the everything you need to build everything bubble or everything you need to feed everything bubble or everything you need to feed every one bubble. I, I'm, you, know, you, you name it. Um, I'm not perfectly, perfectly sure that that transition ever happens without people getting really panicky about what's going on in the big markets. And to, the extent, to, to the extent that they're using leverage and that they become forced sellers, all of these equities will, will, be, will be affected at least for a time, and the junior equities the most. But in every past cycle of this kind, they have been the best performers off, um, off of the bottom. Or sorry, I shouldn't say off the bottom. They'll be the best performers. They'll, they'll be the horse that starts... Uh, It'll be the horse you want to bet on in the race that follows the beginning of the crash of these, you know, larger speculative stocks. Right, right. Yeah, I think. David, you mentioned the word panic, in it, or you said panicky, but it's, you know, obviously, despite uncertainties, despite um, the inflation expectations and, and really what the inflation economy we're living in now. Uh, it's definitely, it doesn't seem transitory. Uh, panic hasn't really set in, but there is this uneasiness mm-hmm. in markets, in society. Like, it, you know, it just, at least here in the States, and maybe it's because I read and talk to people day in, day out about this stuff, but it just certainly seems like people are on edge, whether it comes from the economy, when it comes from markets, or maybe just comes from societal woes, mm-hmm. you know, it definitely, I, I don't remember a time in my life, uh, you know, maybe other than maybe right after 9-11, when society has been so on edge. Right. But just about anything. Like, you're looking back over your shoulder all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, and what what does that say? What does that say about the, you know, what's your analysis here? What does that say to you about 
where we are and how it's relationship to to mm-hmm. markets and mm-hmm. that correction that people are starting to say probably needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and here I just want to be careful because, of course, I don't. You know, I think I think I, we started this interview off with me saying that if Deutsche Bank can't figure out where interest rates are going, uh, how can I? <laughs> right, but right, right. Uh, I think there is some consensus amongst the intellectuals on the left and the right that um, we have had uh, an extended period of wealth concentration in the developed countries. Uh, uh, And um, I think that wealth concentration uh, wealth inequality is almost always the problem that results in revolution. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's other, other reasons for it, but it would seem, yeah, I mean, every day, what's on the, what's on the headlines today? Billionaires tax. The Democrats are struggling to get Manson and, and cinema to agree to a broader taxation policy to, to, to at least pretend that they can offset the three and a half trillion dollars of spending they want to do to, to continue to get the economy moving uh, as they move towards the midterm elections. And so what's popular? Well, okay, let's just start with billionaires because there's a lot of money there and not a lot of votes. <laughs> mm-hmm. there's, yeah. there's 700 billionaires and therefore only 700 votes. And, and so, this is um, this is just symptomatic symptomatic of the fact that wealth has been distributed to uh, unequally in the United States and Canada and Germany and some some of these other places, and there are peaceful ways for that to resolve itself. And there are, uh, I think Kyle Bass calls it kinetic conflict. Now, <laughs> I've been listening to him a lot lately, I, I quite enjoy. Uh, I, I quite enjoy Kyle's commentaries on on the world and China and all those other things. Um, but the peaceful way in which you solve wealth inequality is by devaluing the currency, uh, increasing minimum wage so that it offsets for the middle class and the lower classes the devaluation in the currency. And potentially through some program of societal debt forgiveness. I think on Real Vision, they used to call it a debt jubilee before it became a, a, a crypto marketing uh, scheme over there, Real Vision. So, um, so we're on edge because I think people see it coming. And uh, you can see now, you know, Biden gets into power with all kinds of promises of making society more equal, and it's going to build a lot of bridges and use a lot of steel and a lot of met coal and a lot of copper, and it's going to transition from a carbon-based economy to a green economy, and going to borrow trillions of dollars to do it. Uh, everyone should pay higher taxes, but uh, those who've been unequally blessed can't afford to pay more taxes and those who, who have had greater blessings can afford to buy, can afford to buy lobbyists. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a tricky situation. 
And I mean, I, I suppose it's one reason why I'm in precious metals and why I'm in, 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 in um, commodities, because I think they're one area of refuge from those coming problems, but I don't expect them to be revolutionary and I don't expect uh, an administration to get in in any developed economy that just suddenly slams a 15% wealth tax on everyone. I, I, don't, I don't see that. I think that one of the reasons we all believe in precious metals is because we think that, you know, you can raise taxes on a limited basis, but the easiest thing to do is just to inflate the money supply. And the hard thing to do is to inflate the money supply without having an accident with your currency. Right. So, right. so that, that, that's a, a, a long answer that potentially was somewhat, um, it's somewhat representative of how I feel about that. You know that we got to wrap this up, but I, I do want to say that that this wealth tax debate can, is really interesting because it 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 does obviously appear that it's all happening for votes because even economic uh, finance journalists on the mainstream, uh, Stephanie Rao, I think, is on CNBC, and she had posted, I think it was on Twitter, or if she came out and basically said and. Her response to this idea of this wealth tax that they're debating is, listen, those billionaires have their actual capital in places that the U.S. government just can't get to it. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're, they typically just borrow against it to continue that sure. livelihood that sure. Sure. so much of society despises right now. And so yeah. whatever whatever idea or actually gets passed, if something gets passed from this wealth tax or unrealized gains tax or whatever like sure. it's going to be for not it's really just for optics and votes well, I, I, I and i would just say that if a billionaire has a billion dollars worth of assets and borrows 800 million dollars against it and buys goods and services with that that money is being distributed into the economy it's stimulating the growth of other people's businesses it's paying wages and it's getting taxed uh, as well. And the tax part of it, which is the, the, the slice that government takes in order to try to do its own work to stimulate the economy, is going to have much less of an effect than someone taking $100 million of their billion dollars and borrowing it uh, and borrowing against it to spend. Right. And so uh, we all know that when a mining company makes a discovery uh, in a country, uh, well, there's let's talk about how that's going to be taxed over time. But the real the real win for the community or the country in, in which the resource is discovered is the billion or billions of capital investment that comes in in order to develop the project. So uh, this whole concept of billionaires who never pay taxes because they borrow against their assets to spend it ignores the fact that it is the spending that is the most impactful thing on the economy and the most beneficial thing to the economy, not giving it to the government so they can spend it in a manner which I would argue is almost always less productive. Uh, David, it's a real pleasure to have you on. It, 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 this conversation took a couple turns that uh, <laughs> it was very much welcoming. I wasn't really necessarily prepared to have, uh, but I, I would love to have you on uh, maybe before the end of the year. We usually slow down around the holidays, but we still do stuff, put out yeah. some content, just not as frequently. Uh, maybe mid-December, you and I can reconnect and we'll kind sure, of rehash sure. I, what I, we're I, as, as much as I enjoy talking about the macro environment taxation and, and, and equity uh, in society, uh, I think there are those better qualified. And I do love to talk about buying stocks 
uh, and uh, and how one does that better. So I don't think we got any of that. Uh, no. <laughs> but uh, to the extent that you want to talk stocks and and how I think about investing in in, in juniors, uh, on or offline, call me anytime. All right. Thanks, Dave. That's uh, Dave Lotan. He's uh, he's a private investor. He's with the CEO of LHI Capital. He's also the chairman over at Orion Resources, A-U-R-I-O-N. Uh, and him and I had first connected in Beaver Creek and I'm happy to reconnect today. And uh, we'll be sure to chat with you again later this winter, David. But until then, have yourself a great couple of weeks. Oh, thanks so much, Trevor. I really love the work that you're doing and uh, and uh, I, I really think that investors benefit from it. So my, my, my thanks for that. I, I really appreciate that. Kind words. You bet. Bye now. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak to a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.